All right. Hey there. Uh, it's Pastor Darren, and I'm here because I wanted to record a conversation about some things that are stirring in my heart, and I don't know if this fits with Sunday, um, but I think it has everything to do with our church in this moment. So I'm going to attempt to record a few of these, and if they are helpful or useful, great. Um, I'm trying to be obedient to the things that I'm sensing from the Lord. And over the past few weeks, I have been watching and observing the world and our community engage uh, in the world around it um, in a unique way. And I wasn't anticipating some of the um, the crisis to bring out what it's bringing out, but it makes sense because you, when you read in scripture um, about the future, things that will look, things that will come, you see some warnings uh, given from Paul or John or Jesus himself to what to anticipate, what to expect when things feel like end times. Now we have been in the end times um, according to Peter since Acts chapter two, uh, when the prophecy of Joel was fulfilled, when the spirit of God poured out on uh, the church. And so it's just interesting uh, as we engage in the world around us, um, I'm realizing that what we need to do as Christians is we need to engage in the world with a biblical worldview. We need to see the world through the lens of the scripture. And so I got to thinking about why um, certain posts or news articles or Christians doing what they're doing, why it was bothering me or creating this tension inside of me. And I realized I have a perspective of following Jesus that has been informed through scripture. And I realized that I need um, or I desire deeply for Garden Church and for any resilient disciple out there to learn how to form their worldview through the scriptures and allow the scriptures to inform their politics, the scriptures to inform their view of money, scriptures to inform how they organize their schedule or their finances or how they parent or how they date or engage in the world. And I realize that for some of us, that's not the norm. That's not how we have been trained. We have developed a worldview um, through our experience, through our education, through our, our past church, through uh, unintentional habits, um, through the news or our social media or narratives given to us by TV and movies. And I want you to know that you are being formed every single day by those things. And so how do we intentionally uh, become formed into Christ's likeness? And how do we develop a way of viewing the world that reflects the Jesus we've come to know through the scriptures? And the answer to that is, how we read scripture. Well, that's one of the ways. And I want to talk about that in particular. How to read scripture and engage in culture. So the Bible today is controversial for lots of reasons. One, it's the every single year, it is the best-selling book in the world. Um, it is the number one selling book in history. And in 2015, five years ago, the American Library Association said it was the top 10 most challenged books of 2015. Uh, 
What that means is the Bible is among the most frequently requested books to be removed from public libraries. Libraries are wanting to take the Bible out. People want the Bible out of public libraries because it's challenging, because of what's in it. Um, During Stalin's Russia, people could be sent to death or imprisoned for owning a Bible. Today in North Korea, in North Korea, it's if you own a Bible, it's punishable by death. And why? Why is that? Why is it so threatening? Um, but I think, you know, to, to talk about the Bible in that way, it's one thing. But also today, the Bible is challenging. When you read the scriptures, when you open up the Old Testament and read it, it's full of nasty stuff. And I use that word intentionally. It's full of polygamy and rape and incest and murder and deceit and racism and violence. And I'm talking about the the heroes of the Old Testament. Those stories include those things. How is it that you read in the Old Testament, God commands the death of women and children, and then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus commands nonviolence and the love of enemies. And then we have the problem of interpretation. The Bible throughout history has been used to justify horrible things, the African-American slave trade, the genocide of Native Americans, the British and French imperialism of Africa. I'm just naming a few. We can go down the list. Some people um, have an interpretation that God is in control of everything, that he has determined everything and making it happen. And others of us believe that there's free will and that there's evil and there's good and God has given us choice. Some people believe when they read scripture that the spirit And the gifts of the Spirit have died out when the apostles died and when the Bible was canonized. Others believe that the Spirit is alive and well and that the gifts are for today. That's what we believe. Some people will read um, the last chapter of Mark, chapter 16, um, that section that was added later. It wasn't found in the earliest manuscripts. Um, and, And they believe that they should handle snakes in worship settings. Some people will read uh, a passage in James and take that advice so that they don't take their children to doctors when they're sick. Interpretation seems to be a problem and an issue, and it's caused divisions throughout history, and it's caused other things throughout history as well. So the Bible is controversial. One author says, words and ideas have power, and the words and ideas in the Bible have so much power that a rather recent History Channel documentary titled 101 Objects That Challenged the World said the single thing that changed the world more than anything else was the Bible. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, which was a first century uh, way of saying the Old Testament. So do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus refers to the scriptures, the Bible in his day, the law of the prophets, 
the law or the prophets. Um, he, he says three things that you can pull out of this passage in Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount. One, to Jesus, the Bible is a story that reaches its climax in his life. That Jesus himself is the climax of the scriptures. Number two, according to Jesus, the Bible is trustworthy. That not the smallest letter will be taken away. And number three, that the Bible is authoritative or has authority. Jesus was not closed-minded, he was not dogmatic, and he certainly wasn't a fundamentalist. Jesus, later on, a few passages later, will say, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So now he's quoting the Old Testament. And then he says, I tell you, though, who anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then he goes on right in the midst of talking about the authority and the, uh, how the Bible is trustworthy, Jesus then um, says that the Bible is in constant need of debate, dialogue, rethinking, and rereading in order to get to the heart of the text. This means, at the end of the day, the Bible needs to be interpreted. It needs to be interpreted. We need, when we read the Bible, we interpret it, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to talk about how we interpret scripture in just a little bit, but let's back up, okay? So what is the Bible? Well, what you need to know is that the Bible is the word of God. It's inspired by God. It's God breathed. The Bible contains 66 separate books, 40 different authors wrote the Bible, spanning over 1,500 years. There's 39 books in the Old Testament where God is seen speaking and working in history from the beginning of creation until about 450 BC, and then the Old Testament ends. And then there are 27 books in the New Testament that work through the Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And then there are writings outside of it, um, uh, outside of Jesus' life from apostles, and writers like Luke and other disciples of Jesus that wrote about um, things in the church. And the Bible is a compilation of divinely inspired writings that share one continuous unified story. Our Bible has been canonized and it has been, a, a, it's a collection of books that the church recognize as having a divine authority on the matters of faith and doctrine. And the process of canonization um, began in 170 AD. And then there was a process in 363, and then 393, and then 397. Um, and the canonical process, the process of our church fathers and mothers walking through to decide what was, what belonged in this one continuous story and what didn't, um, was held with integrity and, and, and um, power. And there's some great work out there. There's a book by F.F. Bruce. I'm, I'm forgetting what it's called. I think it's The Canonical Process that talks about this process. And it was so inspiring for me as someone who left the faith and came back to see how much work went into bringing the scriptures to a place of congruence. So um, that's kind of the background of the Bible in the details of what it is. Um, but what you need to know is that the Bible, when we say it was inspired and it's the word of God, you also need to know that the Bible was written by real people in real places, in real time, 
in real human language. Let me say that again. The Bible was written by real people in real places, in real time, in real human language. You see, the Bible is not some mystical thing that happened alone in the cave. The Bible was written by all these different people over a long period of time with a specific purpose. Um, And that drives the interpretation. Again, I'm jumping ahead of myself. So what you have to realize, what you have to see is that each of these letters, each of these stories, these poet, this poetry, um, what, what it means is that the Bible is occasion, occasional literature. It was written for a specific purpose. And therefore, if we're going to read it right or correctly, we need to pay attention to the purpose for which it was originally written. Does that make sense? So, we need, if we're going to get the Bible right, we need to pay attention to the purpose for which it was originally written. In other words, um, we can't just say, say the Bible says so, because what we're saying is, well, the Bible, what we think the Bible means. And I'll get to that in a second. When you go to Romans chapter 16, verse 16, there's this command and it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And whenever I go to church, very, nobody kisses me when I walk in the room. My friends don't hug me and give me a kiss. Um, we don't kiss. And most of us would say, okay, that makes sense. But the reason you don't kiss me is because you either don't believe the command of the Bible is something for today, or you, um, you didn't know it was a command in the Bible, or you believe that... Um, Something that 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 command, sorry, has my children are running up and down as I'm recording this, um, and I was just hearing if their screams were okay. Let me say that again. Um, you didn't kiss me when I walk into church because you either didn't know it was a command in the Bible, or you believe that that has something to do with the context and culture um, that Paul was writing to in the first century. And if you read this. And you say, well, that greeting of kissing somebody on the, on the cheek or greeting somebody with a holy kiss was uh, contextual for them. What you just did was interpret scripture. You practice what's called hermeneutics, uh, the process of interpreting scripture. So when you make a leap from what the Bible says to, to what the Bible means, you are interpreting scripture. And we're always doing this. The only difference is... Um, we don't always do it intentionally or with consistency. So what we need to do is learn to read scripture and interpret it in a way that's consistent from Genesis to Revelation. We need tools to read um, scripture from Genesis to Revelation that help us make sense of the scriptures um, with a consistent form of reading. Now, you don't read all the scripture the same. And what I mean is there's different genres of scripture. So there's poetry, there's narrative, there's, there are epistles. Um, and when you get to those sections, you need to apply your uh, a way of reading and interpreting scripture that makes sense for that genre. Does that make sense? So when somebody says, well, the Bible says, what they're actually saying is what the Bible means. And at the garden, I, I lead a church at the garden, and most of you are part of it if you're listening to this. We want to be consistent with how we read the Bible. We want to be consistent with how we interpret the Bible and how we teach the Bible. 
So at the, at the Garden Church, we believe that the best way to interpret the Bible is to allow the author's intent to be the anchor of our interpretation. We want to allow the author's intent to be the anchor of our interpretation because the Bible can never mean what it never meant. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. So for us, context matters, literary context matter, historical context matter, cultural context matter, and all of those things, all of these things influence how we understand Scripture today. I believe the Bible is a subversive and redemptive library of books anchored in historical reality that's pulling society and culture into a better future. I believe that the Bible is a subversive and redemptive library of books anchored in historical reality, pulling society and culture into a better future. And I want you to see how this book can influence the world, but most importantly right now, influence our worldview. How do we allow the scripture to influence our worldview? All right, so I want to talk about a couple of thoughts about interpreting scripture and what we do with things that we see. Um, First, there's this passage in Deuteronomy 21, and it says this, when you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when you captured her. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and her mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. This is from the word of God in Matthew chapter 20, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 21, verse 10 through 14. And it has to do with how you treat women during, during war and has to do with the spoils of war. Now, a, few, a couple of thoughts. I've heard lots of people talk about the Bible as something that is distant behind the times or absent. And people read the scriptures and they say it's archaic, it's misogynistic, and it's barbaric. And I want to say, first of all, I disagree with the fact that the Bible is absent behind the times and distant. I think how you interpret scripture is making it that way. But yes, at times it can be read as archaic, barbaric, and misogynistic. Look at this passage. How many of us, when we read this scripture, feel that we want to vomit, <laughs> that, we, that our stomach turns when we think this is a command from Deuteronomy on what to do when you go to war. I mean, if you see a woman who's beautiful and you're attracted to her, you can take her as your wife, shave her head, let her mourn for an entire month. Gee, thanks about the death of her father and her mother and her previous life because she's just been, her people have been defeated. And you can go to her and be her husband. It's talking about what you don't want it to be talking about. And then if you're not pleased with her and it's referring to sexually, that you can just 
let her be? You can't sell her though. Like, what the heck? Now, if you think that the Bible should be read literally, this would frustrate the heck out of you. Excuse me for that language if heck is a problem. So what do we do with verses like this? And when we say, oh, this is the old covenant and now we're under grace, that, that I, I totally understand. But what do we do? When we say that, what we do is we make God in the Old Testament look grumpy. And Jesus is like the, the, the son who cheers up the grumpy father. That's not what's going on. It's not a get out of jail free card. Deuteronomy 21 um, is, is talking about the code of conduct in the ancient Near East uh, when somebody would go to war and that, that people who won the war um, would, would, what they would do with what they called the spoils of war. In, for, in ancient Near Eastern context, um, everything would be seen as property. So if one army defeated the other, and they killed off all the men, the women and children will become slaves. So when you go to the battle and you defeat your enemy, um, you kill all the men. That's what would happen. And what this passage is saying is that if you found a woman to be attractive, uh, you have to treat her as a wife. You don't get to treat her as property. You have to honor her feelings and her emotions. You, you can't treat her like a donkey or a bag of coins that you snagged. The Bible in ancient Near, Near Eastern context is saying you have to treat her as a human. You have to treat her as your wife. You can't sell her because she's, she's not property. What you have to see is in its context, this passage is so radical and progressive. It's, it's pulling society and culture forward. God created humanity in his image, men and women. And Ever since the fall, God has been trying to redeem and renew and restore creation back, back to its original intention, back to the place he designed it to be. And when you get to Deuteronomy 21, you see God making a leap forward. He's pulling culture forward. The writer of Deuteronomy is, is doing something that would have been seen as, as revolutionary, as progressive, as this step in the direction towards Genesis 1 and 2, um, mutual relationships. And th- this is why when we apply this verse literally, we miss um, what God is trying to do in its context. It has to do with something called redemptive movement. And the idea is God is pulling creation towards what he intended creation to be in the first place. So when we read Genesis 1 and 2, we get a picture, an image of God's heart for creation, shalom. And then when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, we see um, this shalom being restored. We see God bringing creation back to the way it was supposed to to be. No death, no tears, Um, humanity worshiping Jesus and um, life being restored to its original intention. So the in-between of Genesis 2 to Revelation 21 is this grand narrative of redemptive progress, of redemptive movement that comes in the culmination of Jesus. And then even from Jesus moves towards Jesus's second coming. Now, let me just hit on this a couple of more uh, times. When you read in Exodus chapter 20, Verse 13, you have the story of the Israelites being freed from slavery. And when slaves have been dehumanized for 400 years, um, what you have is a story of God um, trying to restore humanity back into a group of people that were treated as machines, 
as um, inhuman. So there's, there are these commands, like Exodus 20 verse 13 says, you shall not murder. So if we're going to ma- build a new society, if we're going to learn how to be human again, let's make sure we don't kill anybody. And everyone would say, yes, that's a great idea. But it doesn't end with society and culture and humanity getting to a place of just not killing each other. That's not enough. Jesus goes on in John chapter 15, verse 13, and he says, hey, greater love has no one than this, but to lay down one's life for a friend. So it goes from, hey, when we're creating society, let's not murder each other. Yes, that's great. But where this redemptive movement culminates is a statement from Jesus where he says, look, If you really want to get it, if you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, what heaven on earth looks like, it's this agape love. It's laying down your life for one another. That is progress. Would you agree? Exodus 20 verse 4 says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, if this was like the the goal of marriage, how terrible would marriage be? All right. All I know is I'm going to say I do, and I'm not going to commit adultery. That's the baseline, but that's not it. What you have is a, the beginning of progress of God moving society and culture and the world forward to its original intention. Uh, and you, what you have is this, this reflection from Paul bringing us to this new view of what relationship looks like from the eyes of Jesus. And he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, All right, so just remember that we go from, okay, going back to what I was saying, Ephesians chapter five, Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. So it goes from, hey, don't commit adultery to love your wife as Christ has loved the church. So Jesus' teachings are, and, and the, the, the progressive movement of Scripture starts somewhere, and, it's, and, and in that time period, like not killing somebody in that time was great. It's good moral. It's a good um, rule to have, but, but it's not the end game. It's pulling culture and society forward towards redemption and restoration. That's where God is leading us. Now, just one more mention. When you look at Jesus' teachings throughout the Scripture, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which has been the foundation of Western civilization, what you have to see is we have not progressed morally beyond Jesus' teachings. Think about it. In every other field, we have advanced in significant ways. We've advanced in science, technology, transportation, education, health, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Think about even the last, I don't know, 13 years since the iPhone was released and all of the things that have taken place in our society and culture for technological advancement, the speed at which things are being produced. But in over 2,000 years, we have not been able to improve on the moral teachings of Jesus because his words are the greatest words ever spoken about morality. 
love your enemy, turn the other cheek, go the uh, another mile. If you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. Don't worry. Store up, don't store up wealth. Don't judge. We're talking about some significant teaching that has pulled culture and society forward even beyond where we're at today. Isn't this insane? This is amazing. And this is what the Bible does. The scripture pulls us into the future. It pulls us into where um, God is active and he's desiring us to engage in the world around us through the lens of the scriptures. Um, He wants us to, to base our understanding on where he's taking the world. He wants us to use our resources, our energy, our intelligence, our gifts uh, to help bring about the redemption and renewal he is working on. So the Bible is pulling us forward one step at a time. If you start in Genesis and read to Revelation, we, we see where the story ends. We see it ending with heaven being married to earth, heaven invading earth, heaven and earth being together once and for all um, the way God intended it to be in the first place. So the Bible must become a lens. It must become a set of glasses through which we see everything else. And when the world says it's black and white, we say, no, 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 we see this in color. You see, in a culture that's bending us towards self-focus and narcissism and consumerism and materialism, busyness, exhaustion, and disconnect, and the list goes on, where society has not allowed our globalization of capitalism, um, which, I'm sorry, where society has allowed our globalization and capitalism and our greed to fund the greatest companies in history, which happen to exploit some of the most vulnerable people in the world. We have to challenge those companies, those decisions as individuals through how we read scripture, because the scripture teaches us that God is on the side of the oppressed. God is working to redeem all people and restore all things. And we can't deny that. And so the scripture must become a way through which we see the world. Um, And we can't deny that the scripture has had an impact on how the world is today. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, uh, the Bible led him to choose love and peaceful protest over hatred and violence. And he cited the Sermon on the Mount as his inspiration for the civil rights movement and his concept of creative suffering endured by activists who withstood, per, per, uh, withstood persecution and police brutality came from his knowledge of Jesus, specifically Jesus's trials and tribulation. And in fact, the climax of King's most famous words mirror the promises of the Old Testament from the prophet Isaiah. He says, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low and rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. The racists of that day didn't know what hit them. But again, the idea in the Bible brought dignity and justice to the downtrodden people and they don't call it good news for nothing. When, when, when Dr. Martin Luther King quotes Isaiah and talks about having a dream, he's referencing the scriptures and the future that will come. And um, I believe 
that it is still good news. So this is just the beginning of a long conversation. Um, And I'm just going to list out a couple of things that I want to continue to explore. I want you to know that the Bible is the word of God. So it's important that we get it right. So when we say, thus saith the Lord, we need to make sure that's actually what the Lord is saying. And I believe the higher our view of scripture, the more committed we are to getting it right, to doing the work of understanding what it means, of understanding what the Bible said and what it means for us today. I also want you to know that the Bible is written in human language to human beings, and it came in time and place to people. So it's subject to the same rules of interpretation that we use for other books. So we need to pay attention to the things regarding its original intention. So um, I also want you to know that the Bible is not first God's word to us. It's first God's word to those whom it came originally. And this is from Gordon Fee. So in order for it to become God's word to us, we need to read it first as God's word to them. We need to know as best as we can what it meant to them before we can fully understand what it means to us. And so this is why anybody who reads the Bible will interpret it. So for us, again, the author's intent is the anchor of our interpretation. So we say the text can never mean what it never meant. A text cannot mean whatever we think it means. A text cannot mean whatever our inspiration tells us it means. A text cannot first mean whatever our hearts tell us it means. All these possible meanings must be measured against what it meant to those to whom it was originally written to. Um, so let's stop there because I want to I just leave you with a bunch of those, those statements at the end. But I really believe we need to engage in scripture. So uh, in, this, in this conversation, I, I want you to remember um, that the Bible is authoritative. It's trustworthy. It finds its climax in the life of Jesus. The Bible is a collection or a library of books. It's subversive, um, it's redemptive, and it's pulling society and culture and, uh, into a better future. It's, it's how we um, need to learn to interpret the world around, it, around us because it is a lens through which we see the world. And I want to teach you how to read scripture and engage in culture. Okay, that's it for now. Have a great day. Love you guys.